Matthew, chapter 14, verses 1 through 21. Chapter 14, Burkett Notes. The former part of this chapter gives us an account of the death of John the Baptist, together with the occasion of it, which was his plain and faithful reproving of Herod for the uncleanness he lived in. Verses 1 and 2. At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus, and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist, he is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, how strange it was that Herod should not hear of the fame of Jesus till now. All the country and adjoining regions had rung of his fame. Only Herod's court hears nothing. Miserable is that greatness which keeps princes from the knowledge of Jesus Christ. How plain it is from hence that our Savior came not at court. He once sent, indeed, a message to that fox Herod, whose den he would not approach, teaching us by his example not to affect but to avoid outward pomp and glory. The courts of princes are too often a very bad air for piety and religion to thrive in. Observe, too, the misconstruction of Herod when he heard of our Savior's fame. This, says he, is John the Baptist, whom I beheaded. His conscience told him he had offered an unjust violence to an innocent man, and now he's afraid that he's come again to be revenged on him for his head. A wicked man needs no worse tormentor than his own mind. Oh, the terrors and tortures of a guilty conscience! How great are the anxieties of guilt and the fears of designed displeasure than which nothing is more stinging and perpetually tormenting. Verses 3 through 5. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John had said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her, and when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude, because they counted him as a prophet. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the person that puts the holy Baptist to death. It was Herod. It was Herod the king. It was Herod that invited John to preach at court and heard him gladly. One, it was Herod Antipas, son to that Herod which sought Christ's life. Chapter 2. Cruelty runs in a blood. Herod, the murderer of John, who was forerunner of Christ, descended from that Herod, who would have murdered Christ himself. 2. It was Herod the king. Sad that princes, who should always be nursing fathers, too, should at any time be the bloody butchers of the prophets of God. 3. It was Herod that heard John gladly. John took the ear and the heart of Herod, and Herod binds the hands and feet of John. Oh, how inconstant is a carnal heart to good resolutions! The word oftentimes has an awaking influence where it doth not leave an abiding impression upon the minds of men. Observe, too, the cause of the Baptist's death. It was for telling a king of his crime. Herod cut off that head whose tongue was so bold to tell him of his faults. The persecution which the prophets of God fall under is usually for telling great men of their sins. Men in power are impatient of reproof and imagine that their authority gives them a license to transgress. Observe 3. The plain dealing of the Baptist in reproving Herod for his crime, which in one act was adultery, incest, and violence. Adultery in that he took another's wife. Incest that he took his brother's wife. 
violence that he took her in spite of her husband. Therefore, John doth not mince the matter and say, It is not convenient, but it is not lawful for thee to have her. It was not the crown and scepter of Herod that could daunt the faithful messenger of God. There ought to meet in God's ministers both courage and impartiality. Courage in fearing no faces, impartiality in sparing no sins. For none are so great but they are under the authority and command of the law of God. Verses 6 through 11. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. Burkett notes, several observables here to be taken notice of. One, the time of this execrable murder. It was upon Herod's birthday. It was an ancient custom among the eastern kings to celebrate their birthdays. Pharaoh's birthday was kept, Genesis 40. Herod's here, both with blood. Yet these personal stains do not make the practice unlawful. When we solemnize our birthday with thankfulness to our Creator and Preserver for life and being, for protection and preservation to that moment, and commend ourselves to the care of His good providence for the remainder of our days, this is an act of piety and religion. But Herod's birthday was kept with reveling and feasting, with music and dancing, not that dancing, which is in itself a set, regular, harmonious motion of the body, can be unlawful, any more than walking or running but circumstances may make it sinful. But from this disorderly banquet on Herod's birthday, we learn that great men's feasts and frolics are too often a season of much sin. Observe, too, the instigator and promoter of the Holy Baptist's death, Herodias and her daughter. That good man falls a sacrifice to the fury and malice, to the pride and scorn of a lustful woman, for being a rub in the way of her licentious adultery. Resolute sinners, who are mad upon their lusts, run furiously upon their gainsayers, though they be prophets of God themselves, and resolve to bear down all oppression they meet with in the gratification of their unlawful desires. Observe 3. With what reluctance Herod consented to this villainy. The king was sorry. Wicked men oftentimes sin with a troubled and disturbed conscience. They have a mighty struggle with themselves before they commit their sins. But at last their lusts get the mastery over their consciences. So did Herod's here. For, for, notwithstanding his sorrow, he commands the fact. He sent and beheaded John in the prison. And a threefold cord tied him to this performance. One, the conscience of his oath. See his hypocrisy. He made conscience of a rash oath, who made no real scruple of real murder. Two, respect to his reputation. Them that sat with him heard him promise and will be witnesses of his levity if he did not perform, insisting upon punctilios of honor has hazarded the loss of millions of souls. Three, a loathness to discontent Herodias and her daughter. 
O vain and foolish hypocrite who dreaded the displeasure of a wanton mistress before the offending of God and conscience. Observe 5. These wicked women not only require the Baptist to be beheaded, but that his head be brought in a charger to them. What a dish is here to be served up at a prince's table on his birthday? A dead man's head swimming in blood. How prodigiously insatiable is cruelty and revenge. Herodias did not think herself safe till John was dead, but she could not think him dead till his head was off. She could not think his head was off till she had it in her hand. Revenge never thinks it has made sure enough. Oh, how cruel is a wicked heart that could take pleasure in a spectacle of so much horror. How was that holy head tossed by impure and filthy hands, that true and faithful tongue, those sacred lips, those pure eyes, those mortified cheeks, are now insultingly handled by an incestuous harlot and made a scorn to the drunken eyes of Herod's guests. From the whole, learn one, that neither the holiest of prophets nor the best of men are more secure from violence than from natural death. He that was sanctified in the womb, conceived and born with so much miracle, lived with so much reverence and observation, is now at midnight obscurely murdered in a close prison. Learn, too, that it is as true a martyrdom to suffer for duty as for faith. He dies as truly a martyr that dies for doing his duty as he that dies for professing the faith and bearing witness to the truth. Verses 12 and 13. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. Burkett notes, The disciples of John, hearing that their holy master was thus basely and barbarously murdered, took up his dead body and buried it. Whence we learn that the faithful servants of God are not ashamed of the suffering of the saints, but will testify their respect unto them both living and dead. Observe farther how our blessed Savior, upon the notice of John's death, flees into the desert for the preservation of his own life. Jesus knew that his hour was not yet come, and therefore he keeps out of Herod's way. It is no cowardice to fly from persecutors when Christ, our captain, both practices it himself and directs us to it, saying, When they persecute you in one city, flee, etc. Verse 14. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude, and was moved with compassion towards them, and he healed their sick. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, with what condolency and tender sympathy the compassionate Jesus exercised acts of mercy and compassion towards the miserable and distressed. He was moved with compassion, that is, touched with an inward sense and feeling of their sorrow, and he healed their sick. Those that came to Christ for healing found three advantages of cure, above the powers and performance of any earthly physician, to wit, certainty, bounty, and ease. Certainty, in that all comers were infallibly cured. Bounty, in that they were freely cured without charge. And ease, in that they were cured without pain. Verse 15. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, this is a desert place, and the time is now past. 
Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. Burkett notes. Note here, 1. The disciples' pity towards the multitude that had long attended upon Christ's ministry in the desert. They, presuming the people hungry, having fasted all the day, request our Savior to dismiss them, that they may procure some bodily refreshment. Learn hence that it well becomes the ministers of Christ to respect the bodily necessities, as well as to regard the spiritual wants of their people. As the bodily father must take care of the soul of his child, so must the spiritual father have respect for the bodily necessities of his children. Observe, too, the motion which the disciples make on behalf of the multitude. Send them away that they may buy victuals. Here was a strong charity, but a weak faith. A strong charity in that they desired the people's relief, but a weak faith in that they supposed they could not otherwise be relieved but by sending them away to buy victuals. Forgetting that Christ, who had healed the multitude miraculously, could as easily feed them miraculously if he pleased, all things being equally easy to omnipotence. Verse 16. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart, give ye them to eat. Burkett notes. Observe here, 1. Our Savior's strange answer to the disciples' motion. They need not depart, says Christ. Need not? Why, the people must either feed or famish. Vittles they must have. And this being a desert place, there was none to be had. Surely then there was need enough. But 2. Christ's command was more strange than his assertion. Give ye them to eat. Alas, poor disciples, they had nothing for themselves to eat. How then should they give the multitude to eat? When Christ requires of us what of ourselves we are unable to perform, it is to show us our impotency and weakness, and to provoke us to look to him that worketh all our works in us and for us. Verse 17. And they say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. Burkett notes. Note here what a poor and slender provision the Lord of the whole earth has for his household and family. Five loaves and those barley, two fishes and they small, teaching us that these bodies of ours must be fed but not pampered. Our bellies must not be our master, much less our God. We read but twice that Christ made any entertainments, and both times his guests were fed with loaves and fishes, plain fare and homely diet. The end of food is to sustain nature. We stifle it with a gluttonous variety. Meat was ordained for the belly, the belly for the body, the body for the soul, and the soul for God. Observe farther, as the quality of the victuals was plain and coarse, so the quantity of it was small and little. Five loaves and two fishes. Well might the disciples say, What are these among so many? The eye of sense and reason sees an impossibility of those effects which faith can easily apprehend and divine power more easily produce. Verses 18 and 19. He said, Bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. Burkett notes. Observe one how the master of the feast marshals his guests. He commands them all to sit down. None of them reply, Sit down, but to what? Here are the mouths, but where's the meat? We can soon be set, but whence shall we be served? Nothing of this. 
but they obey and expect. Oh, how easy it is to trust God and rely upon providence when there's corn in the barn and bread in the cupboard. But when our stores are all empty and nothing before us, then to depend on an invisible bounty is a true and noble act of faith. Observe, too, the action performed by our blessed Savior. He blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples and they to the multitudes. One, he blessed, teaching us by his example in all our wants to look up to heaven for a supply, to wait upon God for his blessing, and not to sit down to our food as a beast to his forage. Two, he break the loaves. He could have multiplied them whole. Why would he rather do it in the breaking? Perhaps to teach us that we are to expect his blessings in the distribution rather than in the reservation of what he gives us. Scattering is the way to increasing. Not grain hoarded up in the granary, but scattered in the furrows of the field yields increase. Liberality is the way to riches, and perniciousness the road to poverty. Christ gave the bread thus broken to the disciples that they might distribute it to the multitude. But why did not our Lord distribute it with his own hand, but by the hands of his disciples? Doubtless to win respect to his disciples from the people. The same course did our Lord take in spiritual distributions. He that could feed the world by his immediate hand chooses rather by the hands of his ministers to divide the bread of life to all hearers. Verses 20 and 21. And they did all eat, and were filled. And they took up the fragments that remained, twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Burkett notes, They did not eat all, not a crumb or a bit, but to satiate and fullness. They did eat and were filled. Yet twelve baskets remained. More was left than there was first set on. So many bellies, and yet so many baskets filled. The miracle was doubled by an act of boundless omnipotency. It's hard to say which was the greater miracle, the miraculous eating or the miraculous leaving. If we consider what they ate, we may justly wonder that they had anything left. If what they left, that they ate anything. Observe farther, these fragments, though of barley bread and fish bones, must not be lost, but by our Savior's command gathered up. The liberal housekeeper of the world will not allow the loss of his orts. Oh, how fearful then will the account of those be who have large and plentiful estates to answer for as lost, being spent upon their lusts in riot and excess. (laughs) 